0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Asian Americans. Hope you're doing well and staying healthy. Uh, This episode is a really special one. Uh, I have my friend Simran Jeet Singh back for a second conversation, but mostly to celebrate the launch of his brand new book, The Light We Give, which is out now wherever you buy books. And so I highly encourage you to check it out, uh, support Simran, fellow Asian American authors, and get yourself a copy of The Light We Give. Uh, We talk about life, what we've been up to, Uh, what it means to balance life and all the things that our country and our world is throwing at us uh, from the particular lens of faith and other belief systems and community. And so big thanks again to Simon for joining us for this uh, really fun second conversation. Uh, Shout out to our friends at Stand With Asian Americans, Justin, Brian, and the rest of the crew for making this happen as we are on our series to talk about what now. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you are uh, staying healthy, safe, with the rise in COVID cases across the country. Uh, author of The Light We Give, here now is my conversation with Simran Jeet Singh. Hey, y'all. Welcome back uh, to The Asian Americans. I said y'all because my guest today is <laughs> hails from Texas. I am rejoined for the second time by my dear, dear friend, uh, Simran Jeet Singh, who is, first of all, just uh, an amazing human being. And if this is your first time uh, listening to The Asian Americans or you haven't listened to uh, Simran's first interview, uh, which is episode 120. I encourage you to pause this one, go back, get his story, understand where he's coming from, or listen to this one and then go listen to that one right after. We we shared a lot about his upbringing um, in Texas and obviously some of the challenges that he faced, um, you know, in post 9-11 America and how he eventually went down the path of academia at the high le- highest levels to now share uh, the story, not of his own faith, but how religion can play a role in social justice and the amplification and elevation of Asian American stories. Um, He's back today to talk about some more interesting and fun things going on in his life. So, Simran, welcome back to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you again, Jerry. really appreciate it. I always say this every time we have a second guest, but not everybody gets to invite back. And so, uh, and I maybe shouldn't say that for folks we don't invite back on the show, (laughs) but um, I mean, mean, primarily uh, we're, we're back today because as you, the listener, are listening to Sermon and Me Today, uh, which should be July 19th. you got a new book coming out, The Light We Give. And so tell us about the book.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, in, in lots of ways, this was the book that I've dreamed of writing uh, since I was a kid. It was, you know, growing up, uh, really noticing that there weren't any any books, I mean, any kind of media and, and of any kind uh, that, uh, told our community story uh, from a Sikh perspective. And, you know, that this is true from a South Asian perspective or a broader Asian, I mean, just across the board, there was so little out there. And over the years I've been, I've been wanting to introduce uh, our community to the world in, in various ways. And and one of the, you know, lessons that I've learned in my own storytelling over the years is, um, is, is the most compelling way to communicate with people uh, is through storytelling. And so it's, it's a memoir in a lot of ways, uh, which is a little strange for me because I don't actually think my life is that interesting. Um, but uh, there, I've, I've learned that my life is interesting to a lot of people just because the experiences that I have as someone who wears a turban uh, and has facial hair and has brown skin in this country, like, it's just different. And so I've, I'm trying to share some of my experiences of what it means to be a sick in America and also some of the wisdom that I've learned from my tradition uh, that's helped me navigate the challenges that we all face.
0: You know, every time I talk about this book with you, which we sort of alluded to in the first interview, uh, which was uh, just about a year ago on on To the Dot, um, you kept saying that this is the book that you always wanted to write and this is the book that you Mm -hmm. really wanted to write. And, um, and, And so for folks who haven't listened to the first episode, um, Tell us about the other book, which is is uh, sits on my bookshelf. We read it with our kids. Um, it has a different tone, obviously, but this is going to be your second book officially, although one is meant for children. The uh, this one is meant for us mostly. But tell us about that first book that you wrote.
1: Yeah, well, that, I appreciate that. That's a book I also uh, hold dear to my heart. And as a kid, I, I dreamed of writing a, a kid's book too, so and maybe maybe I was just a nerd as a kid and, and loved books more than I, than I probably should have. But um, yeah, that, that was the story of, of the world's oldest marathoner, uh, who is a personal hero of mine and also happened to be sick in South Asian and, and lots of um, inspiring aspects of his life that, that really changed my own. And so I love that book. I guess part of what I guess I'm trying to say uh, by saying these books are both ones that I dreamed of. It's it's kind of like, um, and I'm guessing you had this experience too, in some ways, and I'd be interested to hear uh, if this is true for you, but just like, you know, you, I think it was Toni Morrison who had this line that you should just you, you write the books that you want to read. And and I just remember growing up and being like, man, I just want to read books about my own community. I mean, I loved everything else about, I mean, everything I, I read literally was, was was fantastic and I was into it. Uh, but there was just like this this little desire inside of me that I was like, man, what if what if we just had stories about us too, that, as part of the larger literature? Um, so yeah, that's that's both of them are books that I've long wanted to write, in in part because of because of representation.
0: You know, it's it's really interesting that you mentioned you know writing a book that you wanted to read, which is literally the reason why I started this podcast because I wanted to create something that younger me or my kids could listen to in hearing Asian American stories that uh, maybe existed in reality when you and I were growing up, but certainly weren't captured in this way. And obviously, the pandemic gave us an interesting way to reflect uh, for a lot of different reasons. But I I think what's really important about both of your books, uh, one obviously geared towards children, but also adults, and then this one, which is primarily uh, targeted towards adults, is It's also a book that should be read, that will be read by people who aren't like you, people who are not of the Sikh faith, right? And I think when we think about uh, particularly children's books uh, that feature Asian American protagonists and that Asian people write for us, uh, as both me and you, as Asian American fathers or kids of Asian American children, our first thing is, wow, my kids get to read books that have characters that look like them. And then all of a sudden it hits us, every other kid at their school. I hope gets to read these books because that's part one is us seeing ourselves. But part two is having non-Asian kids just normalize seeing us in their books. Like we've been asked to normalize people who don't look like us being protagonists in all the stories that we've been told as kids. And so, I mean, I I think it's really, really important that you are doing this work. um, You're doing it on a a stage that is, you know, it's, it's a, um, the adult book is uh, published by Penguin, one of the big ones out there. And, Uh, To get that, you know, institutional support, I think, means a whole great deal. Um, Before we talk about uh, The Light We Give, um, your first book, uh, Fauja Singh, was released in August of 2020. Um, And so that was like in the early part of what seems like a distant memory, but only less than (laughs) two years ago. Um, Yeah. Tell us about how, you know, and, and you weren't able to do any book tours or book signings or, you know, visit schools like, you know, you would have in a, in a normal book release cycle. Um, but I'm, I'm very curious to know, um, it's been another year since we last talked, what, what, what's what been the reception like from community members, from, you know, other people or people that reach out to you, um, particularly during a time, you know, that's been challenging for our community, not just because of um, the rise in anti-Asian hate, but COVID and just things in general. Uh, what does that book meant for you and the folks in your life?
1: Yeah, I love I love the question. You know, um, yeah, there, there was some, um, I guess, disappointment is probably the right word um, that the book. You know, I worked on it for years, and then it came out with um, with without any sort of real without without a real bang because it was COVID, and you know, the world had more important issues to to deal with, and and in many ways, so did we. Uh, in, in our own household. So, um, totally, totally understand it, but also, um, uh, missed, missed the fun with that one. And it, at least in the early part, um, but you know, books have long lives and, and one of the real gifts over the years has been, you know, it's what it's about two years old now. Uh, I've, I've had an opportunity to read it to kids in person, to travel around and visit bookstores and do programs and sign books. So that, that part of the the movie version of the story is really fun, and then there's all like there's all sorts of other aspects of it that I didn't expect that have been even more fun. You know, there's um, there's been a lot of attention on the book from you know different journalists and and news sites, and that's been really exciting. Uh, that the story seems to be resonating. Uh, for Jessing himself, who is now 111 years old, uh, was very happy to receive the book, and it was my dream. Mm-hmm. It would come out while he was still alive. And, um, you know, the the biggest thing for me, I, I had two real goals at the end of the day. One was to get the story out there in ways that it actually reached people. And that seems to have been successful. Uh, I, you know, I occasionally get letters from kids or emails mm-hmm. from kids or messages of different kinds uh, from all over the world who are very happy to see it. And, the other real um, joy that's come from this is I really had this vision of, of proving the market, you know, mm. all the publishers and editors will tell you that there isn't a market for books like this, that, you know, mm. the reason that they haven't been made in the past is because nobody will buy them and these stories aren't relatable. And so for me, um, you know, hitting, hitting the sales numbers and really um, getting the attention overall, the the real joy is knowing that now there is a market that it's been proven and that we can get more stories like this. And so it's, it's kind of that principle of, you know, you, you shatter that glass ceiling and then you, and then you bring other people along. That's what I'm really excited about with it.
0: It's so funny. I mean, I'm, I'm just smiling inside and both outwardly as you, as you share, Simon, because the whole notion of there's no market for Asian American books is, is one silly Uh, Because one, it is really the chicken or the egg. How do you know you've never given us a chance, number one? And two, specifically uh, to Asian Americans, I guess, broadly to Asian Americans or Asians globally, and and two, uh, to Sikh Americans, what do you think the global population is for our audience, right? Like, because especially, you know, for South Asians, English is a spoken language in the home country anyway, right? This message resonates with hundreds of millions of people who follow the faith. Right. And and so it, it almost seems very intentionally close minded that they only see our potential for even from a business sense to be defined by the paradigms of what the denominator is, which is America. And then we have to fit into the numerator somehow to use a math, uh, you know, analogy. But in essence, there's so many more, probably more than the total population of America itself that is interested in stories like this because it is who we are on a global scale. And so for you to just say, Hey, you know, we just going to pr- go to the take it to the market and let the market decide. Right. Because there are, and we know that this style resonates.
1: Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting to hear you say that because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And, and of course, you know, you and I have been thinking about this for a while. It's, it's part of what we do, but there's a, there's a new perspective for me on this and, you know, you, you Probably, probably has come across your mind already, but but part of the perspective is um, on the one hand we have this construction of this larger category of AAPI of Asia, Asian American and Pacific Islander, uh, which is very much in many ways being uh, used as as a way to to build bridges, but also to lump together some really diverse communities. And, and, and that, you know, it, it has a function and, and in many ways that function is very governmental and it's, it, in some ways, I mean, I'm happy to talk about this more. It doesn't, it doesn't totally feel natural to me, but then if that is the category we're using, then, then part of what we should be able to see and what we have to see is that Asia is, is a big place. It has nearly half the world's population on that single continent, right? Not, not exactly, but, but pretty close. And so to, to come in and say, well, people don't care about your story. I mean, it's like, what, what people are you talking about? Right. You know, there's, if, if it's a numbers game, that doesn't really make sense. So anyways, it's the strange tension that, that I've been observing of like, on the one hand, people want to put us into this larger category and see us in this way. But then when it fits their agenda, then they, then they remove us from that category and say like, well, you're really just this like small thing that nobody cares about. So yeah, just just a, an observation I've been playing around with in my head.
0: Oh, I, I think, you know, what, what these stories do for us every time you and other people say, let me, let me try. Right. Because we know this works. Um, it actually inspires so many more people to believe because you've done it to write a book about a, a sick person or to write a book about your experiences as a a sick American. And to say, hey, this stuff resonates, right? And, um, you know, and and that's where I think our work, um, and and you and I talk a lot offline about just, I don't know, keeping in touch with each other and encouraging each other, because this work is quite challenging and frustrating. And we're both dads, and we've had a lot of stuff on our plates, Um, give folks context, we're supposed to Meet in person in glorious fashion at South by Southwest this year, but <laughs> COVID had other other you know other uh, things to say about that. And so, you know, but in the midst of all that, it really does inspire the next person to have less self doubt, right? And to say, hey, if it's been done once, it can be done before. And 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 it is really you know while it's unfortunate that um, so many of us and our children continue to be raised with so much uh, almost institutionalized self doubt. To say that people who look like you, kids who look like you, can't do any of these things. It's really encouraging for you specifically to, to write the books that you do because it is a very underrepresented demographic, whether it's in book form or children's book form or even just an inner understanding of what the faith is and what the people behind the faith or people within the faith uh, represent. And so let's go back to The Light We Give. Um, why now? Why, why, at this point in your life, father of two young children you're, you're doing a lot of great work in the uh, in the nonprofit and sort of the the think tank space. why did you feel that this was the right time to share and, and you were sort of remiss to call it a memoir, um, although I, for one <laughs> think your life is extremely fascinating and um, yeah, tell us about the timing of the book and, and what you hope to achieve from many people reading this
1: Yeah, well, I guess you know in, in many ways the the intention here is really, is really simple, right? It's, let me, let me share with you a story that you haven't yet heard, right? So there's something new uh, to learn just by virtue of, of someone else's experiences, you know, probably a kind of life that you haven't considered before, but is very much real and living alongside you in this country. And, and at the same time, as I'm sharing this story with you, the story of my life, let me also share with you some wisdom that you haven't encountered yet and and that part to me is really uh exciting because you know this Sikh tradition that i live by and try to practice every day uh, it's the world's fifth largest religion Uh, there's nearly 30 million people worldwide so it's i mean it's a big it's a big religion uh but it remains unknown here in the west and you know that that Lack of understanding, our our cultural ignorance has fueled all sorts of violence and challenges. And you and I have talked about that in the past. But what it also has to offer us, I think, and and what it's given me, you know, a big reason that I choose to continue practicing it and and continue wearing my turban is that I think it has real practical value for all of us. You know, not just for me. I, I mean, I found joy and happiness through it i mean despite the challenges that come my way uh, but i think it offers a really interesting and universal perspective on what it looks like to find happiness in our lives and you know one of one of the things that i should say is i'm our religion is not a missionary religion i'm not here to convert people and to say you know you should you should live the way i do and practice the way i do i mean it's it's not about that it's more like there's some really interesting ideas uh, within the sick world view that I think are simple and practical and can really transform our ability to to find happiness in our day-to-day lives. And so that's that's what I want to offer, especially in this moment where it feels like life is so hard for so many people. It's so it's so hard to find the light. Uh, it's so easy to dwell on the darkness or the difficulties that are that are around us at all times. And so it, it just feels like the right time to try and share this message that I've received—it's not—it's not really my own message, but I've—I've I've received it, and it's given me a different way of engaging with the world, uh, and I—I and I wanted to share that with others too.
0: Um, you dedicate this book to your parents, uh, who you say who taught us how to live with love and to give with love. What do you want? So you dedicated this for your 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 parents, but I want to flip that because you and I are both dads. What do you want your kids to think about this book? Maybe they're not old enough to fully comprehend all the nuances in the stories, but um, when they're adults maybe, or when they maybe think it's cool that their dad wrote a book. Um, I don't know what age that happens to kids, but uh, <laughs> what, what, what do you want your kids to really be grateful for uh, in, in you writing this book? Oh, it's it's a great question.
1: You know, I, I, I share a little anecdote in the epilogue of the book, which, which was really touching for me. Um, I I was putting my daughters to bed one night and and my older one, um, she asked me as they were going to sleep. I I don't think this was a postponing tactic, which they have, they have plenty of (laughs) and they're getting worse. Um, But, but I, I, she asked, she asked earnestly one night, like, do you, do you ever get get tired of taking care of us? And, you know, in my, in my head, uh, as you would know, uh, the answer is a hundred percent. (laughs) Yes. Like, of course, of course that's the answer. (laughs) But also, of course, that's not what I wanted to say to her. And, and it took I, you know, I took a beat to think about what I wanted to say and how I really felt. Um and I said, no, of course not. Like this is this is what I love doing, which is true in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it's tiring too, but it is what I love doing. And 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 I shared with her this this line that came from six Scripture. Um that I don't think about often. I mean, we recite it daily, but it's not something that typically that, that I'm typically carrying with me at all times, but just kind of popped into my head. And, um, and it's, it's this idea that the, the giver keeps on giving, talking about the divine, the giver keeps on giving. And we just take and take like as people. So the giver gives, and we just take and take to the point that we get tired. Hmm. And and it's it's such an interesting concept because what what I learned from it and what I learned from parenting is yeah it can be it can be exhausting to consume all the time. And even though that's how our culture wires us, right? We're constantly taking and taking and everything in life is about our own consumption. But actually can draw energy from giving to others and I've experienced that in my own life it is how I try and comport myself and it's it's a major central teaching uh, in in Sikh philosophy but to me that is in in at least one of the basic principles that I want my kids to take away that life is not just about you life is not about taking and consuming all the time like real energy real joy comes from giving. And that is an endless well if you learn how to draw from it. And so that's that's something that, you know, as my girls are getting bigger and I'm, I'm getting more and more tired of being with them all the time of like, oh, yeah, this is this is energy giving, right? And, and they can be for all of us if we, if we learn to think about it that way. Yeah,
0: there's so much I want to respond to there. I, I think it's uh, for parents, for, for, for not yet parents, understand that these two things can coexist, that we love our kids 100%, but they also exhaust the crap out of us. <laughs> um, and that, you know, and, and I think it's just also uh, that sort of expectation is a lot of the things that uh, many immigrant parents suffer with, that they live in this binary, right? Like, um, or or I guess children of immigrants, we we live in this binary where we equate love for our parents with obedience, or we've been taught to think that mm-hmm. way. Or, and And so, you know, as the world turns seemingly, or at least America seemingly turns more. Black and white binary in in all things, and that we have to choose, you know, uh, left or right or, you know, uh, whatever it may be. These moments where I am so humble that you can do both like, I love my country and therefore I want it to be better and therefore I'm going to challenge it. And that just, you know, um, unilateral acceptance of all things that are fed to you does not equate love, right? Or or equate uh, love for country or patriotism. You know, th- this book and a lot of your work in the community with the Sikh coalition and other things are generally rooted in your faith, but your other work with the Aspen Institute and Religion in th- the Religion and Society program isn't just, your role there isn't just to represent the Sikh faith, but rather to explore ideas and to have tough conversations on religion's roles in advancing equity and justice and, and how it plays, how religion plays, not just your faith again, but all the world's big religions or no, no religion at all and other belief systems which is to me really fascinating for a number of different reasons one because even though on paper we are not anytime we talk about the word religion or faith there is the american expectation that we're talking about protestant christianity and that that's what religion means right so when in, in in america that seems to be the understood nuance there and that's not the case because there's so many different amazing faiths that people believe and not believe, and uh, there's different sects. So, so the the fact that I think you're you're doing research and working in this space where we are one just unilaterally broadening, even just the idea of what religion means in this country, I think is is a big step. And two, coming from certain privilege, yes, but not generational privilege of access to certain institutions or uh, knowledge that some of these things exist. To me, I've learned throughout my adulthood to to think of the Aspen Institute as one of these, oh, that's probably not for me. Or, you know, it is uh, hard to reach or it's, you know, it's, um, very difficult for Ill- immigrant children to be a part of it. But yet you are leading the Religious Society program there. How did you get involved? What What is the motivation to do that in a place perhaps that doesn't have a whole lot of people that look like me and you, and what is the goal of pushing the narrative on having these tough conversations so that we can understand religions and its impact better in in the light of uh, social justice, specifically?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that. It's, I mean, a lot of what you said, I I, I really resonate with, and you know, I, I guess you know, one one simple way of looking at it is you know you don't you don't have to be black to be against anti-black racism you don't have to be gay to support lgbtq rights and similarly you don't have to be a particular religion to believe that everyone in this country and everyone in this world should be able to live and practice how they believe right like to me it's to me it's that simple and and part of what's difficult is that we live in a country and in a society where um, we're all self-centered. Um, we typically care about ourselves and our own groups. And I mean, historically, we've been pitted against one another to say, you know, if I if I don't get my rights, then you shouldn't get yours. Or if you get your rights, then I might not get mine. And so we, we're constantly playing this, this really small-minded competitive game in our heads of, what do I belong to and how do I make sure that I'm taken care of? and in many ways that's really natural, but if you step back and look at it, I mean you, you it's really easy to understand why we're in the same problem we've been in for decades and centuries mm-hmm. and so for me you know growing up it's it's easy for me to understand what it's like for religious minorities to experience discrimination because I I felt that growing up. I mean, I faced it. And and part of what I learned, especially after the attacks of 9-11, was that as six, we would only be safe when other communities were also safe, right? Mm-hmm. Our well-being depended on the safety of Muslims. And as long as Muslims were enemies or perceived enemies in this country, we would also be mistreated. And then over time, my thinking started to evolve even more, which was to recognize that until other communities, until every community had equal rights in this country, I would not have equal rights in this country. And so, sort of, I mean, it's it's countercultural; it's it's swimming upstream uh, to be able to recognize the from the big picture perspective that the only way we create safety for everyone uh, is is if we shift the culture. Right, where it's not a zero sum game and it's not a constant competition, but all, but, but, but we can actually create a society in which everyone wins, right? That's the goal. And for me, that's, that's particular. That's, that's what I'm doing through the lens of religion. Uh, but I think, you know, if you can really, Shift culture in one of those areas, then you can really create meaningful change across the board. And so, all of these issues are are dear to my heart. I, I think it's because of my personal experiences of of knowing what it's like uh, to be on the wrong side of prejudice that 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 I that I have devoted my life and my my career to it. But that's that's really the the top line of of why I do what I do, and also the vision of our. Program at the Aspen Institute, and and the the one thing I want to say that I I've really come to appreciate about this organization uh, and our team is that um, it's not it's not a typical think tank. You know, think tanks typically look, observe, study, and and analyze, right? And and they'll give you what their their views are on issue. I mean, their job is to think. And and at the Aspen Institute, we're we're empowered to act on the issues, which to me is a critical part of the work, right? If you're, if you're just sitting back and thinking and uh, pontificating or whatever it is, like, who cares? Like, what difference do you make? And so the, the action orientation and the justice orientation uh, of our work really excites me because it's it, it, it makes me feel like we have the opportunity and also the team uh, that is that is really focused on making meaningful change.
0: The notion of we're not safe until we're all safe, I think, is really, really poignant. You know, um, not from a religious perspective, but there's this uh, notion, at least amongst East Asians, uh, when we get hurled something racist, which is generally go back to China. Uh, it was often a joke or at least, you know, a, a defense mechanism of humor amongst us Korean guys or you know Japanese or Taiwanese or others to say you're an idiot I'm not Chinese right and and almost as if that absolves us from being you know discriminated against or that solves the intent of what that person was saying right And and that's I think for me it's like well it doesn't matter if you find a reason to think that you're not the target of The hate in that moment, or to say, hey, you know, wrong yellow or wrong brown or wrong faith, right? Like it doesn't matter because it's not. It's the hate that is the thing that we should look to extinguish. And even the, for me, even the the receiver of the hate isn't as important. Or, or I guess what's more important than identifying the specific recipient of that hate is trying to find the root cause of where that hate began. Right. And and so it's Mm -hmm. less important that we say, hey, get your get the country right next time. And if you're going to offend me, say, you know, go back to Korea. Ha ha. That doesn't do anything. It's like what makes you think that asking an Asian looking person to go back to China is the appropriate response or an appropriate saying for any reason. And and to put it under the religious context, I think because religion looks a little bit different than race most times or or sometimes or even uh, ethnicity. Right. I, I think it's really hard. I think, you know, there are sick people who look like me and other people, right? Like it's not you don't have to be, you know, Punjabi or, or South Asian, period. Right. There are I have an amazing friend who's a Korean Jew. Like, how do we even think about that in terms of what religion looks like in our minds so that we can begin this discussion about how it impacts more than just the thing that you envision when you hear certain phrases? And and I think that's hard. So I'll ask you sort of a question that's been weighing on my mind lately, specifically on this issue. For, for, for many, it seems that one of the crucial or one of the pillars that is causing so much division is Christianity in this country, one of the many religions, but perhaps the most dominant one when we think about you know, religion in this country. How do we have a conversation broadly about religion's impact on policies and things without blaming one or demonizing one or, you know, even thinking about that? How do you, at at the discussions that you have, you know, within the Institute or with your other colleagues, make it less about the religion but more about the issues? I'm not sure if I phrased my question properly, but it's something that I've struggled with, trying to understand even how to process where to direct the energy to? Yeah, yeah,
1: it's, it's it's a it's a great question. It's one I've been thinking about a lot too. I mean, especially given recent rulings, um, in which the result is you know the the convictions of a select few are being pushed on to everybody in this country, whether whether you agree with their religious views or not, and and that's that to me is a problem. And and so part of part of the challenge, I think, when it comes to dealing with um, religion in the public square or how it how it manifests itself with regards to policy or government, is that I mean th- th- there are a few challenges. One is that we, as a culture, have become comfortable with talking about certain areas of identity, right? We we are more comfortable talking about race and gender and sexual orientation now than we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, right? We'll talk about whiteness and white privilege and white supremacy uh, in ways that I couldn't have dreamed of 15 years ago. And, and we don't have the same comfort with discussions on religion. And that's that's actually a disadvantage to us. And it's, it's something that we need to figure out how to address because essentially, By not being able to talk about it, we end up skirting those conversations and missing the real issues. And so, one of the opportunities, I think, is to think about what is effective in our conversations about race and gender and sexual orientation, and how can we use them as analogs for religion? And one of the key issues, I think, and one of the ways that we can come to understand where the problems come in is to look at intersections of power and dominance. Mm. And and so here's here's what I mean, right? Like as with any group religions are in I mean religious practitioners are extremely diverse, right? Every everyone believes something a little bit different and you have people all over the spectrum. So I mean it doesn't it doesn't work to simply point our finger at a single entity and say, well, that religion is screwing everything up because that's, that's not really how the world works, right? There are specific people with specific views who have access to power. And that's, that's when things get a little messy. And so I think part of our conversation that we can look at, uh, with regard to racism that we can use as an analog is to say, well, we are thinking about how whiteness as a concept and white supremacy as a culture has become entrenched in our systems and is, is, is I mean, in, metaphorically speaking, like in, in all of the air that we breathe. And so what would it look like for us to step back and think about, well, here are the ways in which Christianity has been encoded and embedded into our systems in ways that are affecting our, in, in ways that have shaped our institutions and, and therefore have been unintentionally perhaps at best right but like in some cases intentionally in, in ways that are causing challenges or friction for people who aren't necessarily Christian right and they're really simple examples of this to like illustrate the point and I find these to be accepted I, I find these to be fairly effective um, but but Christocentrism uh, in, in the you know the, the centering of Christianity and the way that we center whiteness one example is, is our holiday calendar. Mm. Uh, you know, work, work schedule, school calendars are, are built around the expectation that Christmas and Easter are off. Uh, but what about other religious holidays? We might be starting to include a few others over time, but there are many that, that we're not accounting for. And that becomes a challenge for people. They, they end up having to choose which, days, which holidays they observe within their own faith. And I've, I've had that challenge. We've had those conversations in our family. And similarly, the the week schedule here in the States is very much based on an expectation that Sunday is the day of rest, right? that That comes from a view of a Christian calendar that is not the same uh, for Muslims who who pray on Friday. right? That's That's their day of gathering. And so it it is the reality that we have expectations and norms based on Christocentrism. It is also the reality that now we are an incredibly religiously diverse country, probably the most religiously diverse society in human history, and we have to figure out new models for making sure that everyone is included uh, in the way that we structure our day-to-day and month-to-month activities. And so those are those are just some simple examples that I think can help open people's eyes to the ways in which people are excluded. Uh, And that can open up a conversation about, well, we need to be a little bit more thoughtful and introspective about how people are being excluded. And then let's start thinking about solutions so that we can make sure that no one's left out.
0: And that last piece is really important, Simran, because we're not, I say we, but for, for, for the goals of the Aspen Institute or other entities that want to ensure inclusivity, it is not, the goal of inclusivity is not the erasure of somebody else. It's the equal voicing of the others who have not had the same privileges as the dominant voice, right? And so it's Mm -hmm. not to say, hey, to elevate the concerns of the Muslim or the Jewish population in this country, that we need to somehow abolish all the things that, you know, the, the Christian or the Catholic or other groups want to elevate. And and I think that's really gets me thinking a lot about what is considered the norm or what is considered traditional in this country in this context. Um, You know, as somebody who came to uh, the United States at a young age, at eight, but still, you know, grew up thinking that I was always going to be a Korean in Korea until the day my parents told us, hey, we're going to America. Everything about America I had to learn as something that was Mm. different and then adopted or accepted eventually as the norm. And and I think that's sort of, you know, a lot of the perspectivism, that's not a word, I'm making it up, but sort of how do you see what is domestic versus foreign? What is normal versus abnormal? What is, you know, something we eat every day or something that is exotic or, you know, what is normal versus weird? It, It all depends on that perspective of what we were taught because nobody is born with any perspective we're all taught these things that what is the anchor that makes the the thing norm and i i that's why i you know i don't advocate for or against any particular religion in this conversation but i think it's when not everybody feels that their religious rights are as protected as somebody else as the constitution and other laws in this country provides then then we have to think about that we have to consider that right and i think there's also been conversations around the religious rights to certain types of abortion for members of religions that number in the millions in this country and you know and and yet the uh, religious exemption for now doesn't seem like it may be you know uh, given to them and so what do you hope to change the tone of conversation or what is the impact that you'd like to have uh, with your time at the Aspen Institute? And I guess in, in that regard, Simran, give us a little bit more context. Um, you know, I, I said some things about the Aspen Institute earlier about sort of how it seems so uh, unattainable or seems so distant from particularly mm. the, the everyday Asian American immigrant person. Um, it seems a, like a very lofty, very non-Asian, very white institute. What does the work involve and, and how do conversations at that level help all of us in, in the very diverse Asian-American communities across the country?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, I, I, like, like many people, I mean, like many immigrants, my, my, my parents came to this country with very little. Um, I, you know, born and raised in Texas, public school, uh, no real expectation of anything super intellectual like I I wasn't that into school uh is is probably a direct way to say it um even when I started to of course that imposter syndrome crept up but like even when I started to I I never really felt like I belonged you know I I did my degrees from from Harvard and Columbia and like that's great but like what like where does that take me I'm, I'm not really sure and and the work with the with our community and and you know, in the nonprofit space and in the justice space really, I think prepared me for uh this role with the Aspen Institutes in ways that I wouldn't have expected because again, it's it's an action-oriented think tank. And I started working with them probably about five years ago. And what I loved was that they were very much focused on equity. The the Religion and Society program was started 10 years ago, actually, uh by a woman named Meryl Shertov who who's Jewish, and saw the rise of Islamophobia and how he's impacting Muslims around the country and was like, I, I know what that is. Like, I'm familiar with anti-Semitism and, and what that's done to our community. And so she started this program very much focused on religious equity, inspired by what she had been seeing in anti-Muslim racism. And and then her successor, a woman named Sinatra Rahman, who is Muslim, um, really built on her vision and prepared something Awesome, and so I, I, I like stumbled into the organization, not as not as an employee, but as a volunteer about five years ago, as a participant. They invited me to speak at one of their programs, but as I listened to what they were doing, uh, it felt, it felt like the kind of vision that I wanted to be a part of that culture shift that I was talking about before, and even then, like I never had any. Um, View that I would be leading the organization one day was it was still like a hey help out whenever you can and this kind of thing is not really for you. So I was was really surprised when uh, I got the call inviting me to apply to for for the position as Zenith was leading. And and what I'll say is one of the real benefits of being in this position is that I you know I have I have a different point of view. that you know, my my lived experience, uh, my relationships and networks across the sort of racial justice, religion advocacy world, really informs my approach, and I try and bring those conversations to bear in in, in our work. And so you know, we recently had the Big Ideas Festival, which is one of our key programs, um, and we brought together some really significant conversations on religion and race and changing demographics and you know all the stuff that I really care about and uh yeah and it feels good to be able to to leverage my position to bring in folks who really know what they're doing and have been behind this work for a long time and and that to me I mean the perspective and the unique experience that I bring to the table is is meaningful but also what I really love is being able to lift up uh, other people who are doing incredible work and can help advance this vision for, for equity for everybody. And so that's that's a big part of why I joined, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that so far.
0: I say we collectively, because I think we all benefit from your work. Uh, but me personally, whenever I hear you speak or whatever I hear you comment on current events, and let's be honest, a lot of the things that we've had a comment on or about have have not been the the most optimistic or the positive kinds there's been so much so many things that happen in and of our communities that that force us to reflect or in your case because you are in a public position for you to think and comment about and and to react to publicly I, i am grateful for you where you are at least for me uh challenging a lot of the things that i was once taught or never taught to think about when it comes to religion, mm-hmm. when it comes to belief systems, when it comes to how we can work together, because you're right. And as cliche as it may sound, it's a cliche because it's the truth. There is no uh, justice for one community. There is no, um, you know, reaching some sort of happy place in this country or around the world for one group, because there'll always be somebody suffering. And so knowing that I, I think is, uh, both really optimistic, Simon, but also very challenging because that task just exponentially gets gets its more monumental. I, I think yeah. you writing this yeah. book this summer helps to get your ideas and your thoughts and the wisdom of your belief into the hands of people who may not otherwise get to it. And and so I, I thank you for that. As we you know loosely this summer come across you know two years of covid and coming out to so much in this country and around the world with uh, the, the uncertainty of, of the rights of so many people that we care about of the economy going the way it is with global geopolitical things that are happening even with all those things happening at a big big level Some of the things that our community members, particularly those of us with elder parents or grandparents, Mm -hmm. we still see so much lack of safety or lack of accountability for those who perpetuate these crimes. From the work that you do, trying to bring different voices to the table, what keeps you hopeful and doing the work that you're doing? And as you know, as I guess, uh, a related topic, word of advice or inspiration to those of us listening to continue to either stay engaged or get engaged somehow. Because I got to be honest, it's very hard to continue the fight at times. And it just seems so much easier, just easier to say, screw it, F it, somebody else will fix that problem. But I'm going to go back to, you know, building my own little sandcastle or whatever it is, even when I know, that that's the goal, right? Of the oppressor, that when we give up, they win. How do, we, how do we stay, you know, it's been two years. It's exhausting. We've seen way too many deaths. We've seen one too many disturbing videos. Um, and after that, we've seen one too many people get away with a slap on the wrist, if you will. How do we stay engaged when the anger boils to the point of apathy in a weird progression of emotion?
1: You yeah, know, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question. It's a very real question. Um, and it's, it's also one that I think a lot of us are thinking about today. You know, the, the best answer I know to that is, is to make sure this is something I think about with my girls too, actually make sure you plant your activism within the bed of love. And, and to me, this is this is something that I draw from from Sikh teachings. It's incredibly difficult to do, especially when we're constantly reacting to all the injustices in the world around us and, and the injustices that we face personally. Right? It's not just distant; it's it's very proximate. But when we're able to do that and really and really make sure that every action is driven by the right intention. Uh, that, then we can really get to a place where that anger recedes uh, and our, our our activism becomes service. And that, I think, creates a different kind of mentality, a different kind of psychology, uh, where we see what we're doing as contributions, as gifts, as selfless, right? In the ways that we would serve the people in our families that we love. And, and, and there you, you really focus on, you know, I'm going to do the best I can to care for the people that I care about. And, and that's really all you can control. And so that, that's, that to me is, I mean, I know it's not a perfect answer, but it's also not a perfect world. And so, so we have <laughs> to be able to accept the imperfection of, uh, of what we have and have a little grace and humility and say, okay, I'm. I'm just going to approach this the right way and do the best that I can and, and see what comes of it. Right. That's, that's, what's been working for me at least.
0: It's it's uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I chuckle because we have no other choice, right. To, 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 to give up is really not an option. And I think for uh, I, I, this is a challenge because I had to learn so much about my own uh, family and my own uh, com- country's history. Regardless of whether you're an immigrant, children of immigrants, refugee, adoptee, um, or you don't consider yourself any of those, think about what two generations ago your grandparents went through for us to have this moment today. Simmons in New York, I'm in L.A. We both have have two toddlers, two young people. Uh, We have jobs that give us the flexibility to care for those children. We have the technology to record this remotely on a Sunday evening. and how how blessed are we to live in this world? And as for you too, if you're listening, think about all the blessings that you have that your grandparents could not have ever dreamed of. But from a practical perspective, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to make life better for the next generation. And largely that is through financial opportunities. But from a more nuanced perspective of what are you going to do with what they've done for you conversation? I, I find it really hard to believe and this is what really gets me going, regardless of what country you come from, in the last hundred years, there's been a lot of turmoil, a lot of war, a lot of death, a lot of just just so much ugliness. And our grandparents and our parents fought through that, survived it, and it's not survivalship bias that I'm talking about here, um, so that we could have this moment, right? And we owe it to them to continue... The fight in our own new way and paradigm in this new country that we've decided to call home so that our grandkids can point to us and say, Grandpa Simran didn't just write a book to make a ton of money, that Grandpa Jerry didn't, all he did was care about himself, right? Because I think that's what we think mm-hmm. about, you know, um, we don't think about, we, we we mainly think about the impact of the actions of our grandparents, right? Fighting for a democracy or you know, fighting for the independence of one's country, as, as many of us have been through in the last century. Um, and so, mm. yeah, I, it's always such a joy to talk to you. I feel like we just started talking and we're almost at an hour. Um, <laughs> and so let, let's wrap up by, you know, um, I, I wanted to do this interview with you because one, you're you're my friend and you're my brother and you got a book that comes out today. And um, one of the things that you said that we talked about briefly was let's take the book to the market and let the market decide. Let's see if people are ready and willing and uh, ability It's fine. But if they were really (laughs) ready and willing to buy a book by a turban wearing beard, wearing sick American man about not just his life, but his, his belief system. And so we want to help in that. Why should somebody listening Jump onto any website but amazon.com and go buy your book today.
1: <laughs>
0: Amazon's okay oh, too, gosh, you're, fine.
1: <laughs> you're making me do do the elevator pitch, which I am uh, very uncomfortable I doing. I gave you an hour. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you did. You, that's true. That's that's more comfortable because I'm just hanging out with you. But the uh, the direct. Uh, why should someone buy it? I mean, I guess you know. To me, to me, it's. Uh, the, the best part about the book is, is the jokes. Uh, there are, there are dad jokes all throughout. Uh, my wife even laughed at some of them when she read it, which is like, that hasn't happened in 15 years. So, uh, so if nothing, if nothing else, there, there is some good entertainment value in there.
0: I'm excited. And, and you also have, and, and I asked this specifically, cause I typically like to listen to books. The audio book drops the same day as the regular book, right? so it should be available that's right
1: yeah that's right it should be available and it's in it's in my nice and soothing voice so i hope you i hope you enjoy it how was that that experience
0: of reading your own words for what is it nine and a half hours (laughs) yeah it it was a long time um you know it's it's
1: fun like all this stuff is fun because it's it's what i want to be doing so that's you know it's it's a blessing, but also it was incredibly exhausting. And I you know, never drank so much tea in my life and uh the the studio folks like knew exactly how to cure every single like oh my voice is tired for this reason like here's what you should drink or do or whatever. It was it was really incredible. I learned a ton and and really enjoyed doing it in the studio. That's fun.
0: Oh wonderful. Well um I don't think I've said this yet, but congratulations. Are, oh, thank are in you. order thank for doing what maybe our parents or grandparents never thought possible, which is yeah. to be published in this new country. We decided to call home and not just any book, a book that is about us. Right. And and to, and I think that's, those moments make it so much more special given the context of the reason for the celebration in addition to the celebration itself. And so, Man, you know, you are you are uh, upping the ante for so many of us who want to leave this world a better world for our kids. You got a you got a, a children's book, you got an adult book. You are doing great things, and you are making time uh, for conversations like this with me. And so I, I am ever so grateful. Please continue the work that you do, and um, you know, uh, I know you do very very well. But uh, you know, being a dad is is the coolest thing in the world, and uh, you know, thank you for making my son and my daughter's world a better one through the work that you do, Simran. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Jerry. Appreciate that.
0: Thank you. All right. The Light We Give is out everywhere today, July 19th. Go buy it in person. Go download it, ebook, Kindle, listen to the audiobook, and uh, let us know what you think. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again to Simran for making time for this conversation. You can find him at Prof. That's S-I-C-K-P-R-O-F. On the social internets, wherever you find him. Again, the title of the book is The Light We Give, available now wherever you buy books, also an audiobook as well. Big thanks again to our friends at SWAL for making this a reality. You can connect with me at Dears and Americans on Instagram or my personal account is at JerryJ. If you want to learn more about the work that I do outside of this podcast, you can find me on the internet at jerrywan.com or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks again so much for joining us. Continued safety. Health and happiness to all of you. Your host, Jerry Wan of Dears of Americans. See you next time.